Chapter 7 of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter 7 Wandering Fanny. It was a jocund morning in early summer, some five years after the events related in the last chapter. Oldfield Cottage was a perfect gem of rural beauty. The old fields themselves no longer deserved the name. The repose of years had restored them to fertility, and now they were blooming in pristine youth. Far as the eye could reach, between the cottage and the forest, and the cottage and the sea beach. The fields were covered with a fine growth of sweet clover, whose verdure was most refreshing to the sight. The young trees planted by Marian had grown up, forming a pleasant grove around the house. The sweet honeysuckle and fragrant white jasmine and the rich aromatic climbing rose had run all over the walls and windows of the house, embowering it in verdure, bloom, and perfume. While Marian stood enjoying for a few minutes the morning hour, she was startled by the sound of rapid footsteps, and then by the sight of a young woman in wild attire issuing from the grove at the right of the cottage and flying like a hunted hare toward the house. Marian impulsively opened the gate, and the creature fled in, frantically clapped to the gate, and stood leaning with her back against it and panting with haste and terror. She was a young and pretty woman, notwithstanding the wildness of her staring black eyes and the disorder of her long black hair that hung in tangled tresses to her waist. Her head and feet were bare, and her white gown was spotted with green stains of the grass and torn by briars, as were also her bleeding feet and arms. Marian felt for her the deepest compassion. A mere glance had assured her that the poor panting, pretty creature, was insane. Marian took her hand, and gently pressing it, said, You look very tired and faint. Come in, and rest yourself, and take breakfast with us. The stranger drew away her hand, and looked at Marian from head to foot. But in the midst of her scrutiny, she suddenly sprang, glanced around, and trembling violently, grasped the gate for support. It was but the trampling of a colt, through the clover that had startled her. Do not be frightened. There is nothing that can hurt you. You are safe here. And won't he come? Who, poor girl? The destroyer. No poor one, no destroyer comes near us here. See how quiet and peaceable everything is here. The wanderer slowly shook her head with a cunning, bitter smile that looked stranger on her fair face than the madness itself had looked and so it was there she said but the destroyer was at hand and the thunder of terror and destruction burst upon our quiet but i forgot the fair spirit said i was not to think of that such thoughts would invoke the fiend again added the poor creature smoothing her forehead with both hands and then flinging them wide as if to dispel and cast away some painful concentration there but now come in and lie down on the sofa and rest, while I make you a cup of coffee," said Marian. 
But the same expression of cunning came again into the poor creature's face as she said, In the house? No, 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 no. Fanny has learned something. Fanny knows better than to go under roofs. They are traps to catch rabbits. Twas in the house the destroyer found us, and we couldn't get out. No, no. A fair field and no favor, and Fanny will outfly the fleetest of them. But not in a house. Not in a house. Well, then I'll bring an easy chair out here for you to rest in. You can sit under the shade and have a little stand by your side to eat your breakfast. Come. Come nearer to the house, said Marian, taking poor Fanny's hand and leading her up the walk. They were at the threshold. Are you Marian? poor Fanny asked abruptly. Yes, that is my name. Oh, I oughtn't to have come here. I oughtn't to have come here. Why? What is the matter? Come, be calm. Nothing can hurt you or us here. Don't love, Marian. Don't love. Be a nun or drown yourself, but never love, said the woman, seizing the young girl's hands and gazing on her beautiful face and speaking with intense and painful earnestness. Why? Love is life. You had as well tell me not to live as not to love. Poor sister, I have not known you an hour, yet your sorrows so touch me that my heart goes out toward you. And I want to bring you in to our home and to take care of you, said Marian gently. You do? asked the wanderer incredulously. Heaven knows I do. I wish to nurse you back to health and calmness. Then I would not for the world bring so much evil to you. Yet it is a lovelier place to die in with loving faces around. But it is a better place to live in. I do not let people die where I am, unless the Lord has especially called them. I wish to make you well. Come, drive away all these evil fancies, and let me take you into the cottage, said Marian, taking her hand. Yielding to the influence of the young girl, poor Fanny suffered herself to be led a few steps toward the cottage. Then with a piercing shriek, she suddenly snatched her hand away, crying, I should draw the lightning down upon your head. I am doomed. I must not enter. And she turned and fled out of the gate. Marian gazed after her in the deepest compassion, the tears filling her kind blue eyes. Weep not for me, beautiful and loving Marian, but for yourself, yourself. Marian hesitated. It were vain to follow and try to draw the wanderer into the house, and yet she could not bear the thought of leaving her. In the meantime, the sound of the shriek had brought Edith out. She came, leading her little daughter Miriam, now five years old, by the hand. Edith was scarcely changed in these five years. A life without excitement, or privation, or toil, a life of moderation and regularity, of easy household duties and quiet family affections, had restored and preserved her maiden beauty. And now her pretty hair had its own will, and fell in slight, flossy black ringlets down each side the pearly brow and cheeks, and nothing could have been more in keeping with the style of her beauty than the simple, close-fitting black gown, her habitual dress. But lovely as the young mother was, you would scarcely have looked at her a second time while she held that child by her hand, 
so marvelous was the fascination of that little creature's countenance. It was a face to attract, to charm, to delight, to draw you in and rivet your whole attention until you became absorbed and lost in the study of its mysterious spell. A witching face, whose nameless charm it were impossible to tell. I might describe the fine dark Jewish features, the glorious eyes, the brilliant complexion, and the fall of long, glossy black ringlets that veiled the proud little head, but the spell lay not in them any more than in the perfect symmetry of her form, or the harmonious grace of her motion, or the melodious intonations of her voice. Edith, still leading the little girl, advanced to Marion's side, where the latter stood at the yard gate. I heard a scream, Marion, dear. What was it? Marion pointed to the old elm tree outside the cottage fence, under the shade of which stood the poor stroller pressing her side and panting for breath. Edith, do you see that young woman? She it was. Good heavens, exclaimed Edith, turning a shade paler and beginning with trembling fingers to unfasten the gate. Why, do you know her, Edith? Yes, yes, my soul, it's Fanny Laurie. I thought she was in some asylum at the north, said Edith, passing the gate and going up to the wanderer. Fanny! Fanny, dearest Fanny, she said, taking her thin hands and looking in her crazed eyes, and lastly putting both arms around her neck and kissing her. Do you kiss me? asked the poor creature in amazement. Yes, dear Fanny, don't you know me? Yes, yes, you are, I know you, you are, let's see now. Edith Lance, you know, your old playmate. Ah, yes, I know you had another name, Edith Shields, since I was married, but I'm widowed now, Fanny. Yes, I know, Fanny has heard them talk. She swept her hands across her brow several times, as if to clear her mental vision, and gazing upon Edith said, Ah, old playmate, did the palms lie, the ravaged tome, the blood-stained hearth, and the burning roof for me, the faded nuptials, the murdered bridegroom, and the fatherless child for you. Did the palms lie, Edith? You were ever incredulous. Answer, did the palms lie? The prediction was partly fulfilled, as it was very likely to be at the time. Our neighborhood was overrun by a ruthless foe. It happened so, poor Fanny. You did not know the future any more than I did. No one on earth knows the mysteries of the future, not the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. This seemed to annoy the poor creature, soothsaying by palmistry had been her weakness in her brighter days, and now the strange propensity clung to her through the dark night of her sorrows and received strength from her insanity. Come in, dear Fanny, said Edith, come in and stay with us. No, no, she almost shrieked again. I should bring a curse upon your home. Oh, I should tell you if you would hear. I would warn you if you would be warned. But you will not. You will not, she continued, wringing her hands in great trouble. You shall predict my fate in Miriam, said Marian, smiling, as she opened the gate and came out leading the child. And I know, she continued, holding out her palm, that it will be such a fair fate as to brighten up your spirits for sympathy with it. No! 
I will not look at your hand, cried Fanny, turning away. Then, suddenly changing her mind, she snatched Marian's palm and gazed upon it long and intently. Gradually her features became disturbed. Dark shadows seemed to sweep as a funereal trait across her face. Her bosom heaved. She dropped the maiden's hand. Why, Fanny, you've told me nothing. What do you see in my future? asked Marian. The maniac looked up, and breaking, as she sometimes did into improvisation, chanted in the most mournful of tones these words. Darkly, darkly lowers the shadow. Quickly, thickly comes the crowd. From death's bosom creeps the adder, trailing slime upon the shroud. Marian grew pale, so much at the moment was she infected with the words and manner of this sibyl, and then nonsense, she thought, and with a smile roused herself to shake off the chill that was creeping upon her. Feel the air, the air, said Fanny, lifting her hand. Yes, it is going to rain, said Edith. Come in, dear Fanny. But Fanny did not hear the fitful, uncertain creature had seized the hand of the child Miriam, and was gazing alternately upon the lines in the palm and upon her fervid, eloquent face. What is this? Oh, what is this? she said, sweeping the black tresses back from her bending brow and fastening her eyes upon Miriam's palm. What can it mean? A deep cross from the Mount of Venus crosses the line of life and forks into the line of death a great sun in the plain of Mara, a cloud in the vale of Mercury, and where the lines of life and death meet, a sanguine spot, and a great star. I cannot read it. In a boy's hand, that would betoken a hero's career, and a glorious death in a victorious field. But in a girl's, what can it mean, when found in a girl's? Stop! and she peered into the hand for a few moments in deep silence, and then her face lighted up, her eyes burned intensely, and once more she broke forth in improvisation. Thou shalt be blessed as maiden, fair was ever blessed before, and the heart of thy beloved shall be most gentle, kind, and pure. But thy red hand shall be lifted at duty's stern behest, and give to fell destruction the head thou lovest the best. Feel the air, the air, she exclaimed, suddenly dropping the child's hand and lifting her own toward the sky. Yes, I told you it was going to rain, but there will not be much. Only a light shower from the cloud just over our heads. It's going to weep. Nature mourns for her darling child. Hark! I hear the step of him that cometh. Fly, fair one, fly. Stay not here to listen to the voice of the charmer. Charm he never so wisely, cried the wild creature, as she dashed off toward the forest. Miriam and Edith looked after her, in the utmost compassion. Who is the poor, dear creature, Edith? And what has reduced her to this state? She was an old playmate of my own, Marian. I never mentioned her to you. I never could bear to do so. She was one of the victims of the war. 
She was the child of Colonel Fairlie and the bride of Henry Laurie, one of the most accomplished and promising young men in the state. In one night their house was attacked, and Fanny saw her father and her husband massacred, and her home burned before her face. She fell into the hands of the soldiers, and she went mad from that night. Most horrible, ejaculated Marion. She was sent to one of the best northern asylums, and the property she inherited was placed in the hands of a trustee, old Mr. Hughes, who died last week, you know. And now that he's dead, and she is out, I don't know what will be done. I don't understand it at all. Has she no friends, no relatives? She must not be allowed to wander this way, said the kind girl, with the tears swimming in her eyes. I shall always be her friend, Marian. She has no others, that I know of, and no relatives except her young cousin, Thurston Wilcoxon, who has been abroad at a German university these five years past, and who, in the event of Fanny's death, would inherit her property. We must get her here if possible. I will go in and send Jenny after her. She will probably overtake her in the forest, and may be able to persuade her to come back. At least I shall tell Jenny to keep her in sight until she is in some place of safety. Do, dear Edith. Are you not coming, said Edith, as she led her little girl toward the house? In one moment, dear. I wish only to bind up this morning glory that poor Fanny chanced to pull down as she ran through. Edith disappeared in the cottage. Marian stood with both her rosy arms raised in the act of binding up the vine that with its wealth of splendid azure-hued vase-shaped flowers over-canopied her beautiful head like a triumphal arch. She stood there, as it were, like a radiant, blooming goddess of light and health, summer sunshine, and blushing flowers. The light tramp of horses' feet fell upon her ear. She looked up, and with surprise lighting her dark blue eyes, beheld a gentleman, mounted on a fine black Arabian courser that curveted gracefully and capriciously before the cottage gate. Smilingly, the gentleman soothed and subdued the coquettish mood of his willful steed, and then dismounted, and bowing with matchless grace and much deference, addressed Marian. The maiden was thinking that she had never seen a gentleman with a presence and a manner so graceful, courteous, and princely in her life. He was a tall, finely proportioned, handsome man, with a superb head, an aquiline profile, fair hair and fair complexion. The great charm, however, was in the broad, sunny forehead, in the smile of ineffable sweetness, in the low and singularly mellifluous voice, and the manner gentle and graceful as any woman's. Pardon me, my name is Wilcoxon, young lady, and I have the honor of addressing Miss Mayfield, said Marian. Thank you, said the gentleman, with one involuntary gaze of enthusiastic admiration that called all the roses out in full bloom upon the maiden's cheeks. Then, governing himself, he bent his eyes to the ground and said with great deference, You will pardon the liberty I have taken in calling here, Miss Maysfield, when I tell you that I am in search of an unhappy young relative who, I am informed, passed here not long since. 
She left us not just ten minutes ago, sir, much against our wishes. My sister has just sent a servant to the forest in search of her, to bring her back if possible. Will you enter and wait until she returns? With a beaming smile and graceful bend, and in the same sweet tones he thanked her and declined the invitation. Then he remounted his horse and, bowing deeply, rode off in the direction Fanny had taken. This was certainly a day of arrivals at Old Fields. Usually weeks would pass by without any passing to or from the cottage except Marian, whose cheerful, kindly, social disposition was the sole connecting link between the cottage and the neighborhood around it. But this day seemed to be an exception. While yet the little party lingered at the breakfast table, Edith looked up and saw the tall, thin figure of a woman in a nankeen riding shirt and a nankeen corded sunbonnet in the act of dismounting from her great, raw-boned white horse. "'If there isn't Miss Nancy Scamp!' exclaimed Edith, in no very hospitable tone, "'and I wonder how she can leave the post office.' "'Oh, this is not mail today," replied Marian, laughing, "'notwithstanding which we shall have news enough.' and Marian, who for her part was really glad to see the old lady, arose to meet and welcome her. Miss Nancy was little changed. The small, tall, thin, narrow-chested, stooping figure, the same long, fair, freckled, sharp-set face, the same prim cap and clean, scant, faded gown, or one of the same sort, made up her personal individuality. Miss Nancy now had charge of the village post office, and her early and accurate information respecting all neighborhood affairs was obtained, it was whispered, by an official breach of trust. If so, however, no creature except Miss Nancy, her black boy, and her white cat knew it. She was a great news carrier, it's true, yet she was not especially addicted to scandal. To her news was news whether good or bad, and so she took almost as much pleasure in exciting the wonder of her listeners by recounting the good action or good fortune of her neighbors, or the reverse. And so, after having dropped her riding skirt and given that and her bonnet to Marian to carry upstairs, and seated herself in the chair that Edith offered her at the table, she said, sipping her coffee, and glancing between the white curtains and the green vines of the open window out upon the bay, you have the sweetest place and the finest sea view here, my dear Mrs. Shields, but this is not what I was a-going to say. I was going to tell you that I hadn't heard from you so long that I thought I must take an early ride this morning and spend the day with you. And I thought you'd like to hear about your old partner at the dancing school, young Mr. Thurston Wilcoxon, a coming back. La, yes, to be sure we had almost all of us forgotten him. Leastwise I had. And then Miss Marian, she said, as our blooming girl returned to her place at the table, I just thought I would bring over the muslin for the collars and caps you were so good as to say you'd make for me. Yes, I'm glad you brought them, Miss Nancy, said Marian, in her cheerful tone, as she helped herself to another roll. I hope you're not busy now, my dear. Oh, I'm always busy, thank heaven, but that makes no difference, Miss Nancy. I shall find time to do your work this week and next. 
I am sure it is very good of you, Miss Marion, to sew for me for nothing when—oh, pray don't speak of it, Miss Nancy. But indeed, my dear, I must say I never saw anybody like you. If anybody's too old to sew and too poor to put it out, it's Miss Marion who'll do it for kindness. And if anybody is sick, it's Miss Marion who sent for and nurse them. And if any poor negro or ignorant white person has friends off at a distance they want to hear from, it's Miss Marion who writes all their letters. When they arose from breakfast, and the room was tidied up, and Edith and Marion and their guest were seated at their work, with all the cottage windows open to admit the fresh and fragrant air, and the rural landscape on one side and the sea view on the other, and while little Miriam sat at their feet dressing a nun doll, and old Jenny betook herself to the garden to gather vegetables for the day, Miss Nancy opened her budget and gave them all the news of the month. But in that which concerned Thurston Wilcoxon alone was Edith interested, and of him she learned the following facts. Of the five years which Mr. Wilcoxon had been absent in the Eastern Hemisphere, three had been spent at the German University, where he graduated with the highest honors. Eighteen months had been passed in travel through Europe, Asia, and Africa, and the last year had been spent in the best circles in the city of Paris. He had been back to his native place about three weeks since the death of Fanny Laurie's old guardian, the judge of the orphan's court, had appointed him sole trustee of her property and guardian of her person. As soon as he had received this power, he had gone to the asylum where the poor creature was confined, and hearing her pronounced incurable, though harmless, he had set her at liberty, brought her home to his own house, and had hired a skillful, attentive nurse to wait upon her. And you never saw such kindness and compassion, Miss Marion, except in yourself. I do declare to you that his manner to that poor unfortunate is as delicate and reverential and devoted as if she were the most accomplished and enviable lady in the land, and more so, Miss Marion, more so. I can well believe it. He looks like that, said the beautiful girl, her face flushing and her eyes filling with generous sympathy. Marian was rather averse to sentimentality, so dashing the sparkling drops from her blushing cheeks, she looked up and said, Miss Nancy, we're going to have chicken for dinner. How do you like them cooked? It don't matter a bit to Edith and me. Stewed, then, if you please, Miss Marian, or sop. No, I think baked in a pie. End of chapter 7